Are you curious how to balance paying off student debt, saving for retirement, and actually affording a luxury or two? Well, I cover those questions and more in today's Curbside Consult. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm pretty excited. We're going to be doing another curbside consults episode this week. We'd done one about three weeks ago, and I received a ton of great feedback from you guys, honestly, more than any other show that I've, I've put out there, that this was the type of content you guys wanted to hear and that you liked hearing questions from your peers and, and my answers to it. So I'm honored that you guys took the time out to let me know that, and uh, I'm happy to bring you another episode that I hope you get a ton of value from. Uh, I've got a, about a dozen questions uh, coming up for the next episodes, but I'd really like you guys to ask some more questions. So if you've got one or two questions you'd like to ask, go to financialresidency.com and scroll about halfway down the page. And there's a button there that says record your question. And let me know your name and where you're calling in from. Uh, it's always fun to know where, where you guys are all located. And, uh, you know, ask that important question, that question that's keeping you up at night, one that you just really are dying to get an answer to. I really hope to feature you guys on the show. You can also join me and a couple hundred other physicians and physician spouses in the group that I'd set up exclusively for us on Facebook called the Financial Residency VIP Community. Participate and ask questions there, and uh, I'll also be pulling some questions out of the group and answering those on the show as well. Also, before today's show, I want to make sure to announce this important disclaimer. I am a fee-only financial planner and a fiduciary for my clients, but let's be honest, I don't know you or anything about you. The show is for educational purposes only and shouldn't be taken as legal or financial advice. Please consult your attorney, CPA, or your fee-only financial planner before you take any action or make any important financial decisions. And now it's time for the curbside consult. Our first question comes from Jonathan. Hey, Ryan. My name's Jonathan. I'm a second-year resident. I live in Detroit, Michigan. And my question for you today is... I started medical school after taking a five-year break after undergrad, and uh, I worked for a few years during those years. So I'm going to be a little bit older than most graduates, and essentially my question is how do I aggressively save for retirement when I'm done and balance that with paying down these massive student loans that I have, and then also balancing that with you know, rewarding myself and my family for getting through this process, you know, buying a new car. How do you balance those three things? Paying back loans, saving for retirement as a slightly older physician and uh, rewarding yourself. Thanks. Hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for the question. I actually understand where you're coming from. You know, physicians already get a late start with respects to saving for retirement on top of the massive student loan burden that they're carrying. Starting on a career path for a physician a few years later even makes you feel even further behind, but I would challenge you to think about it a little bit differently if that's possible. Place yourself in a normal career trajectory that your peers are going through. You really can't change the past, only the future. 
So I'd really encourage you to not worry about the things that you can't change. With that said, I think you bring up some really good points and I'd really like to address each one. So having high student debt, a late start on retirement savings, and wanting to be able to afford a few luxuries that you've been putting off, even if it wasn't by choice, are pretty typical for your circumstance. So first thing I would do is I would establish a plan for your debt. And while you didn't say how much your debt was, you know, there's a big difference numerically between talking about 100,000 worth of debt and 500,000 worth of debt, but it really doesn't make a difference when you're establishing a plan for the debt. So if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, then your repayment plan is going to look totally different than if you were going into private practice. And I don't want to go into too much of the detail of student debt here, but if you want to learn more about the student debt, I did a whole show with Travis Hornsby from studentloanplanner.com, and I encourage you to check it out. So putting together a plan, you're going to have to make a few decisions. Again, if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, you basically want to make sure that you're in the right repayment plan that'll maximize the amount to be forgiven. You just need to make sure that these payments are qualified payments, you have direct loans, and that um, really the goal would be to figure out how to make the most that you can while paying the smallest monthly payment possible. Now, you're probably going to be maximizing out pre-tax retirement plans to help you lower your taxable income, and thus it'll kind of make your monthly payments smaller. Unfortunately, your balance is likely to be increasing, but that's the whole purpose of this, even if it looks really scary. So basically, you're going to be seeing your balance increase, but that's the whole point, to maximize the amount to be forgiven and making you know the minimal monthly payments necessary to remain in the program. Assuming you aren't going for public service loan forgiveness, then the question becomes, do you put every dollar to paying down the debt as fast as possible? and living really like you currently are as a resident for another maybe three to five years after training to extinguish this debt? Or how long do you drag out all these payments? And what do you do with the money that isn't being paid over the monthly minimum payments on the debt? That's probably your toughest decision. And really aggressive debt pay down will require extreme discipline. And mathematically, it's probably going to be the best choice, but it's going to be tough. This delayed gratification for you and your family ultimately might give you the most independence in the long term, you know, financial independence. And I say might because I believe that once you're finished with training, you really should be able to maximize out those employer sponsored retirement plans, you know, depending on where you're working, it's a 401k or a 403b or a 457, as well as IRA contributions. If you're 1099, then setting up a solo 401k and making contributions to that should be doable. If you live by that concept of paying yourself first, which I actually recommend. So now we're looking at like, are you investing in your future versus spending now or paying down the debt? Honestly, let's look at it. If everything in your life stayed the same, except for your paycheck and that monthly loan payment going up, then there should still be plenty of money to live off of, you know, as your salary goes up three to five times more of that training salary. So then it becomes a decision of, you know, how much do you let your lifestyle inflate? versus how aggressive you pay down the debt on the loans or, or how much do you save? The thing is, is no one can really tell you what that number is because the only person to know that are, are you and your family. Like what's that right decision for your exact situation? And it's back to this whole personal finances, you know, the, the personal and personal finance. So I think you're actually at a really good point in life to be planning this out. You haven't experienced the lifestyle inflation firsthand. You're still in training. You haven't seen these massive paychecks hit your bank account. I would assume that 
even if you wanted to, you can't really have bad tendencies or, or you don't have behaviors to fix just because the money really isn't there yet. So I think it's a perfect time for you to figure all this stuff out. I'd like to say probably that there are some luxuries that you know you want, right? And I think you mentioned a new car here. It might be a new car. It might be travel a few times a year with the family. I don't know, but I bet you do. And so I'd rank them by importance, a ranking system that would be, you know, what would really make you the happiest or your family the happiest? You know, is driving a $60,000 Tesla and having a car payment and not being able to travel or get a new TV or whatever else is on your list? Like, would you rather do that? Or would you rather buy a $20,000 car and maybe have a medium travel size fund for traveling and maybe one or two real small luxuries? Again, I'm I'm kind of just making this this up here or these examples up, but I think you get the picture. So in summary, I would determine what the best repayment plan is for your loans. I then figure out, you know, what's really important, what would really make you happy um, or the most happy, I should say. Inflate your lifestyle a little bit once you're done with training and maybe taking that extra trip or buying the car, but maybe a cheaper car. You know, moderation's key and I really can't stress that enough. So our next question comes from Laura. Hi, Ryan. This is Laura with the Married to Doctors podcast. You and your wife save an impressive amount of your income every month. How did you guys decide how much to save? And also, did you both agree to the number right away or was there some compromise? Hey, Laura, thanks so much for your question. And honestly, it made me chuckle a little bit. And I'd say that because there's, there's always compromises in any relationship. I believe in my first episode, I stated that my wife and I, the way we set it up is to live off one of our salaries and then to save the other. And for those of you that haven't heard the first show, I'd encourage you to go check it out so you can hear more about me, my backstory, a little bit more about my family, and also why I created this podcast. So to hit the question directly, it might not be the easiest to be married to a financial planner, honestly. Uh, I love digging through numbers. I love analyzing where our spending's going. I love analyzing what our investments are doing and, you know, where we should really be allocating our money and why I really nerd out on this stuff. My wife, not so much. So it was a bit easier when she was in training and I was working for another financial planning firm. We both had W2 income. Uh, We knew exactly what was coming in every month and there was really no temptation to live crazy above our means. You know, I'm really lucky that my wife is extremely intelligent and isn't a huge spender. We didn't have kids during med school or residency, which obviously makes it a whole lot cheaper and easier to live. We're also able to sleep in past six in the morning, and I didn't really appreciate that until having the little kiddos running around. So yeah, we do have two kids and had them both in fellowship. And I did leave that safe W-2 job for this entrepreneur life of running my own fee-only financial planning firm. So things became a bit more challenging to plan, but we've primarily kept true to this living off of one salary and saving the rest. It might fluctuate month to month, but you know that I think that we've really held true to that. The next part of your question was, did we always agree on it? No, no, not really. And that's the, that's the truth. We, we really didn't. Sometimes it was hit or miss. So occasionally we'd spend more than the 50% of our take-home pay. You know, me being the money nerd, I'd bring it up and say, you know, hey, this is what we did. But in the grand scheme of things, was it a big deal? Not really. You know, because we've still, like I said, hovered around that 50% mark. What I did think the most important thing was during training and, and still even to this day, we've 
we've really set up this, you know, really good foundation of financial habits that has served us greatly for when more money started to finally come in, which is where we are today. Um, as my wife finished training about a year and a half ago, we still save around that, again, that 50% of the income coming in. You know, we don't sweat it too much though. If we spend a little bit more, uh, we definitely aren't the most frugal people out there, but we try to keep our spending in check and we really aren't trying to keep up with the Joneses. We don't care what other people are, are doing. We're just kind of doing our own, our own thing, what's comfortable for us. And, you know, we have the occasional luxury here and there, but we just do what's comfortable for us. And, you know, the, we do have the occasional luxury here and there, but, you know, we know what our vision is for our ideal life. And so we just keep moving down that path. And, you know, I probably should add in something here. You know, we did sit down and we do quite frequently, honestly, and talk about what's important to us, what that ideal life looks like and what our, what our vision looks like and how do we want to live our life and what really makes us happy. And, you know, cutting past all the material things and focusing on the core happiness stuff, you know, the, the real important stuff. And so in a few weeks, uh, I've actually convinced my wife, Taylor, that we're going to be doing an episode together where we talk through some of these important questions and exercises that I actually do with my clients at Physician Wealth. So should be interesting. I'm really excited that, uh, you know, I've, I've convinced her to do this and we're actually pushing the, the record button and doing this, but um, it'll allow you guys to hear some of the behind the scenes stuff that I do in my life planning practice. And because it's the time of year that we normally do talk about this stuff in detail anyways. So I kind of convinced her to allow me to record it and to let others hear some of the discussion in hopes that it'll help them out in their own life. So our next question comes from Tim out in Kansas City, which is awesome because I'm a huge Chiefs fan. Go Chiefs. Hi, Ryan. My name is Tim. I'm an internist in Kansas City. My question is about, I guess, a financial planner. I have a friend of mine who gives me good financial advice. He's a financial planner. He talks a lot about how he's a fiduciary. I guess that means he's out to to look out for me, but I don't pay him any money. So I don't know if I should be using his advice or if, you know, I should actually get a financial planner. Thanks Tim for the question. Uh, I think it's actually a really unique question. So having a buddy that works in the financial planning space and is knowledgeable and is a fiduciary is a really great resource for you. When you say he's a fiduciary, that means he's a fiduciary for his clients not to you, but assuming that he's a good buddy and a good guy, um, he's probably looking out for you and your, your best interest, but just want to give you a little disclosure there. The idea of not paying him for his advice probably means that he doesn't know all your financial details. And more than likely, he doesn't know what your goals are, uh, what your visions are for your ideal life, and what that may look like. And it's not the end of the world that he doesn't know this, but I would say take his advice as more general advice then. It may not or may apply um, to your, you and your situation, but without knowing all the details, it's, it's really hard for, to give anyone great advice. An example, there's no way he could possibly know what your tolerance for risk is when you're talking about your investments. He could tell you what he thinks could be a good portfolio based on your age, giving you some ballparks, but he doesn't know for sure. When you're looking at his advice, just remember that. And I'm hope, hopefully he's telling you in this example that, you know, look for a highly diversified, low expense ratio of funds that are invested passively in the entire market and not trying to time the market by buying the high expense ratio, actively managed funds. Now, I'm not saying you can't 
do this by yourself because you absolutely can, but there is a value in getting a second opinion on what you're doing and how you're approaching certain aspects of your life. If things changed, like you had a kid or you bought a home or you bought a car, you know, just as examples, or if you're thinking about these things and you go talk to your buddy, he doesn't know everything or he doesn't know maybe about this and that could change his advice. And so again, this is going back to, you know, the advice he's giving you is probably pretty general and he's banking on his, on his experience, but he doesn't know if it's perfect advice for you guys. And again, uh, you know, I want to throw this out here that this is actually assuming that he's a good person, that he's knowledgeable. He isn't trying to sell you some type of product. Um, I'm not kind of bagging on your buddy, but you know, I've seen it happen before. So if you value his opinion, but you don't want to share everything with him, and you still need some help, then I'd actually recommend reaching out to a fee-only planner. And I want to stress fee-only, a fee-only planner that you feel comfortable with and that you could trust. Again, not saying your friend's advice is bad, but without knowing all the details, how great is that advice really going to be? So otherwise, you got to read up, study up, pay attention to your finances, just ask some general questions, and honestly, expect to get general answers back. So next up, we have Elizabeth from San Diego. Hey, Ryan. My name is Elizabeth, and I practice pediatric respiratory medicine in California. My significant other and I are looking for a financial planner, and I'm confused on the difference between fee-only and fee-based. Which should we choose and why? Elizabeth, thanks so much for your question. We're opening up a huge uh, can of worms here. The first thing I want to tell you is to check out my episode with Tim Baker, we did an episode all about finding a financial planner that you can trust. And we talked a ton about fee only and fee based and kind of the, the dark side of financial planning, which is fee based planning. He came from the fee based side of the business and now he's fee only. So I think you actually get a real big benefit of listening to that episode with Tim Baker. So I'll recap some of the highlights from that interview and kind of give more of my two cents into this. So Fee-only planners make up about 3% of anyone that holds themselves out as a financial planner or a financial advisor or an investment advisor or any other crazy variation of that. I know it seems ludicrous that we could call ourselves all these different things, but really it means the same thing. So let's dive into what fee-based versus fee-only actually means. Fee-based planners could charge for financial planning directly or they could offer it for free and free. I'm putting in quotes right here, air quotes that you can't see me because no one works for free. They are getting paid by some other source. Otherwise they wouldn't be able to live and feed their family. So remember that when someone says, Oh, I include planning for free and we'll talk more about it in just a minute. They could charge a monthly fee for the planning work they do. They could charge quarterly. They could charge a large one-time upfront fee Typically, this ranges on four to $10,000, depending on the clientele that they're targeting, which means, you know, are they focusing on retirees that have lots of assets that can afford to pay high one-time fees along with the AUM, or are they trying to work with younger clients on the lower end of that range and quoting them on that, on that low end of the range? I, I mentioned AUM fees, um, which is assets under management fees. Typically, advisors charge on assets that they manage for clients in addition to the planning work that they're doing. The bigger the assets, 
the more fee because that's just how it scales. And that also could be how they give planning work for free because you're already paying a high fee for the assets that they're managing. Um, it's very common in the industry that financial planning firms do this. Fee only and fee-based actually do this. Very few firms are going that flat fee model, which says is rare and it's even more rare for fee-based advisors going a flat fee model. And like I said, fee only and fee-based, they actually kind of all do that, which seems fine. Honestly, if it stopped there, it would be fine. But now we're kind of going to get into these gray and darker areas. If the advisor sells you insurance, immediately you know they're fee-based. That's really the easiest way to tell if someone is fee-only or fee-based, if they can sell insurance and transact in insurance. If they're an agent and they can transact and sell you insurance, they're fee-based. While selling insurance doesn't mean that they're a terrible person, it just means that they have a conflict of interest. The more insurance they sell you, the more money they make. Are you going to be overinsured so they make more money or are you ad- adequately assured? And you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes that kind of fine line or is, is he selling is he or she selling you these policies because they're in your best interest? Are they really recommending that right amount or are they just kind of lining their pockets? You know, this is assuming that they're doing the right thing and, and telling you to buy the right insurance products that you need, like term and disability. If they're recommending universal life or whole life, they most likely aren't worried about your best interest or even acting in, as a fiduciary to you. They're chasing the commissions that they're getting paid by these insurance companies. I have a post that I'll link to you in the show notes. I think, honestly, everyone listening to this needs to read. It shows how insurance agents are paid, how much they're getting paid, and on average, uh, you know, based on the policy that they're selling. So I'll just quickly mention a few figures, but I really want you guys to go check out that full article that you can find at financialresidency.com and search in the show notes. So the agent that is selling you disability on average is going to get 40 to 50% of the first year's premium and then a trail, which means they're essentially getting paid every year after that, about two to 8% of that premium, as long as the policy is active, which means as long as you're paying the premiums, they're going to get paid. For term insurance, they're going to earn anywhere between 50 and 90%, maybe higher on the first year's premium. But then typically there's no trail after it. So it's, it's really this like one and done type thing. For our whole life or variable life, they're going to get 30 to 60% of the first year premium and then uh, 2 to 10% trail on either the cash value or the premium paid. Uh, you know, it sounds like pretty nice passive income stream right there. And each of these policies could yield the agent thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in the year that they're sold. And then thousands of dollars each year, as long as they're active and the premiums paid. So while they might quote you lower planning fees or free, they're still getting paid for the work that they're doing with you. I don't transact insurance and I don't recommend any permanent life insurance product like whole life or variable life. I honestly can't really see the situation that it would be the best fit for any client, especially young physicians. So if your advisor is trying to sell you, you know, whole life or variable life, I, I'd run. I'd run as far, as fast and as far away as you can, and, and I wouldn't look back. You know, not only do they have conflicts of interest with respects to insurance, but if they recommend you to an estate planning attorney or a CPA or another business, they can receive kickbacks or referral fees for you becoming clients at the places that they're recommending. And while that doesn't seem really fair or in your best interest, they don't have to 
disclose that they're being compensated by Bob, the accountant that they just referred to you. And so now you're sitting here wondering like, is Bob really the best choice for me in my circumstance? Or did the advisor just choose Bob because he gave him the most money? Fee-only planners, they have the least amount of conflicts of interest out of any other financial planner out there. Some will even sign a fiduciary oath. I know that I do. That'll state that they're going to put your interests ahead of their own. Fee-only advisors, they can't receive commissions, which is why they can't transact an insurance. They can't receive kickbacks. They can't receive referral fees for referring you to the Bob the CPA or some estate planning attorney or any other business. They tend to charge a larger fee for one-time planning. Uh, They can charge monthly fees for ongoing planning. They can charge hourly, but that's not as common as like the one large-time planning fee. They can also charge AUM fees similar to fee-based advisors. So the main difference and takeaway is that you need to know is that a fee-only planner is trying to reduce the conflicts of interest as much as possible by aligning their compensation with the client's best interest. You know, imagine if doctors were paid by drug companies. Would you feel comfortable with that model? Uh, I I wouldn't. And that's like the equivalent of a fee-based advisor in the finance industry. So if you're wanting to work with a planner and you want to value someone's opinion and build a long-term relationship with the planner, look for a fee-only financial planning firm. And if you can find one that specializes in working with your specific industry, even better. Thanks to the four of you that asked those phenomenal questions. I really appreciate you guys taking the time going and asking those. And I really hope that uh, you also had a lot of value out of my answers. For those of you listening, again, I really encourage you guys to go to financialresidency.com and ask those couple questions that are keeping you up at night or that are important for you guys to get answers to. I'd love to feature you guys on the show. Or you can join us in the exclusive Facebook group that I created, Financial Residency VIP Community, because I'll be pulling some questions out of there for some future episodes as well. Next week, we have on Amy Chow from collegebacker.com. We had a great conversation all about saving for your children's education. We touch on all the different ways that you can, and then we kind of go real on a big deep dive on 529s, the pros and cons, some of the best plans that we think that are out there and it was overall a great show. So I'm excited for you guys to hear that show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you ask those questions if if you have them and uh, happy holidays. Thank you for listening to the financial residency podcast. This episode is ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.